as we pick up each of these subjects, as we have done uh, in specific reference to such things as the first resurrection, um, the first death, then the second resurrection and the second death, we're, we're simply pulling apart in some minutia of detail these references in Scripture that have simply been overlooked or not, not adequately considered. They're all part of this overall unfolding drama that has to do with the return of the Lord. Can you imagine that if these things were not addressed, can you imagine the end of, of everything being just about us going to heaven when we die? Um, such gaping thing. Or Jesus coming back to take us uh, to heaven with him, as is the more popular view. These are simply silly. When you think of the entire narrative um, and all the things that have to be resolved and how they are to be resolved, these are simply, it, it's silly to leave all these things hanging out, especially when the Bible makes it abundantly clear that these things are important, critically important in some instances, and that the, the return of the Lord has to be from heaven to the earth because all the actors are here. All of the things to be resolved are here on the earth. There's no unresolved matter in heaven. The presence of the Lord on the earth is as much for the resolution of these things as it is the preparation for the coming age, the age beyond the millennium, the finishing up of things in the time of the millennium is not also or not equal to the finishing of all things, the things beyond that. So what we did was we abruptly came, uh, the typical uh, popular eschatological view of things is an abrupt end. Um, people wanting to get out of here because things have gotten uncomfortable, going to heaven when you die, and staying in heaven once you die, and the Lord making a special trip back to collect up all those who believe in Him uh, but who are still on the earth at a certain point in time. And, and the rest of it he essentially abandons to evil. Um, without, there's no reference as to how he addresses the prevalence of evil, uh, how he does what he does. It's this sort of amorphous mass of swirling clouds and mists 
And our attempt is to penetrate that and bring light and clarity in a most concrete fashion by looking at each of these elements. But more than that, of course, to look at what God means to accomplish in the millennium. See, heaven is sort of the idea of going to heaven when you die and that's the end of the story is sort of a happy ending that has no real purpose to it other than the declaration that you are saved and safe. For all intents and purposes, there's nothing else. And the suggestions come in feeble terms like, well, we'll get to explore the nature of God forever and ever in heaven. Not quite what the Bible says, not remotely what the Bible says. But anyway, so I want to focus on two other things now um, and then we'll go on to life in the millennium. Because what you're looking at is effectively at the beginning of uh, the millennium, things being brought into judgment in certain ways. People are, many people are destroyed, the Lord returns and Satan is bound and there is a period in which peace and tranquility and His rule continue on the earth and then there's a summation of judgments. Satan is released as much to facilitate the events of the final judgment by fostering a rebellion against God and bringing into focus what is left of the unrighteous, what is left of the dead who are the unrighteous who are now to be raised and to be judged. That's what I want to focus on. Both I introduced the last time the Lamb's Book of Life and I want to continue that but I want to continue that discussion in context of the great white throne of God, the, the judgments of the unrighteous that issue from the throne of God and from Him who sat on it. In the early part of the book of Revelation, when John is invited into heaven, chapter 4, he said, I heard a voice saying to me, come up here and sit with me and I will show you what is to come. And he said, suddenly I was in the Spirit and he was before or around the throne of God. Now that throne at that time, the same throne at that time was located in heaven. But now the throne of God is on the earth because all of those who are judged by the one who sits on the throne are not people who make it to heaven. It's, 
it's this kind of simplicity of understanding that you wonder why it has escaped people. Who are the ones who appear before the judgment seat of Christ, this great white throne, for judgment? Who are, the, who are those raised in the second resurrection? Who are they? They don't make it to heaven. They are those who are bound over for destruction in that which has been described as the lake of fire. Neither the throne nor the persons appearing before the throne who are destined for the lake of fire are in heaven, neither in heaven at that time. They're on the earth. This is the end of the millennium. So at some point in this process, the throne will have migrated to the earth. He said, uh, Then I saw a great white throne and him who sat on it, whose face the earth and the heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them, and I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God, and the books were open, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. The book of life has been, the, the term book of life has the additional connotation, and anyone not found written in the book of life uh, was cast into the lake of fire. The Lamb's Book of Life, and we, we, we spoke of that earlier on, uh, but I want to tie it into judgment before the throne, and I'm, I'm now speaking about the throne in relationship to judgment, the final judgment. The throne of God has a history of being in heaven and then being found in the earth. But heaven and earth are created realms. They had beginnings and they had ends. So what is the throne of God? Is it an actual seat? Or is it about the authority to conclude, to order creation in a preordained fashion and or to bring judgments and finalities to the intents of God for creating the heavens and the earth. It is from the throne that the authority of God, it is at the throne that the authority of God in creation is focused. But it's more than the symbol of the throne. There's always this reference to, that appears whenever the discussion of the throne is presented. Not an empty throne, but 
him who sat on it. The throne is the symbol of authority. It is associated with kingliness. It's more than a seat, it's a throne. Now, we saw before in uh, uh, 19 that there were other thrones. Verse 4 of chapter 20, I'm sorry. And I saw thrones and they that sat on them and judgment was committed to them. So thrones at times is associated with judgments. And once again, in Revelation 20 verse 11, throne is associated, though great white throne, is associated with him who sat on it. Now there are thrones and then there is the great white throne. It is clear and obvious that there is an exclusivity of authority associated with the great white throne. It is frankly the symbol of divine authority placed in creation and its initial appearing in creation was heaven. Again, for whose consumption is the configuration of a throne at, as the symbol of authority been, been given? Who, who need to understand authority in reference to a throne? Well, obvious, humans. Because the order of humans has always been that of a central figure who rules, beginning with Adam and continuing through the histories of mankind. Nations have an administrative center where a president or before that a king sat or sits. So there is administration associated with thrones and these administrations are administrations of authority. The great white throne is designed in its imposing description and its equally imposing placement in circle, in the center circle within circles according to Revelation chapters 4 and 5 and even other references such as in the book of Ezekiel where the wheels within wheels come to rest and the four living creatures come to rest directly underneath the throne. The importance of this is creation is not adrift. Creation is designed to accomplish specifically designed purposes which God foreordained. And 
regarding which there is a sufficiency of authority established in creation and administrations of that authority established within creations. So the reason that you see thrones around the great white throne is because there are two forms of authority. The great white throne and him who sits on it. The throne is the symbol of final resolution and the power to resolve everything with finality in heaven and on earth. All authority then in heaven and on earth, the symbol of which is the throne, resides within the one who sits upon the throne. That's why you always see a reference to him who sits on the throne. Something of the majesty and power of the one who sits upon the throne is presented to us in the fourth chapter of the book of Revelation when John uh, is allowed to look in upon an unfolding scene in which the question was uh, concerning scrolls that had been sealed seemingly forever or for long ages past and a resounding question echoed through heaven, who is worthy to take the seals and to, or to take the scrolls and to open the seals, to reveal things hidden under divine authority, things that represent the immutable will of God, that makes it, makes the will of God entirely reliable and not subject to turning shadows or variation. And John began to weep because his assumption was that no one was found who was worthy to take the scrolls and to open the seals. An angel who was guiding him said to him, don't weep because the lion of the tribe of Judah has been worthy, deemed worthy to take the scrolls and to break open the seals or the scroll with seven seals which were seven chapters of Revelation so to speak. The one who sits on the throne therefore is the possessor of the authority to order the future and to order the present but in the context of the, the scroll and the seals in heaven to reveal what had been under seal coming from the very mind of God which is the ultimate and final authority, these things that could never be changed, that time and epochs could not alter. So I want to, to 
to describe, I've, I've been attempting to describe something of the power represented by the symbol of the throne but executed by the one who sits upon the throne. The sense of how all creation is subject to the decrees that come out of the mouth of the one who sits upon the throne. Such decrees at times have been typified as a sharp sword proceeding out of his mouth with which he strikes down the nations, which is to say there is no opposition in all of creation, in heaven or on earth, that there is no opposition that is sufficient to thwart the utterances that come from the one who sits upon the throne. So because the throne is intimately uh, 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 associated with him who sits on it, the throne looms in the magnitude and enormity of the scope of the symbolic reference to power, power and authority. In short, decrees from the throne are unalterable and are binding in absolute terms upon everyone and anyone subject to the decrees of the throne. Why is this important? Because in the final judgments that issue from the throne, all matters are summed up in these final judgments. I, want, I wanted to just touch briefly on that portion I referenced earlier from an earlier reading in the book of, in the 20th chapter in which we saw thrones and they who sat on, it, on them. So it's not just the great white throne, there are other thrones. This is representational of authorities that function by delegation. What I'm saying is all authority that issues from the throne can, some of them at times, can, can be reflected judgments by those who sit on thrones in the fashion of plenary authority and delegated authority. One of the features of the book of Revelation is that it speaks of the temple as the location of thrones. And the reference to temple is the term naos, which is the dwelling place of the deity. The one who sits on the throne is actually the head and the body as one, the Lord Jesus Christ, as opposed to merely the person, the singular person of Jesus. 
when he's seated as Christ, he might just as readily issue decrees through us, although that is not the case here in Revelation 20. But it's an important observation as we speak about the authority that is symbolized by reference to the throne. And I wanted to mention that because frequently decrees are issued by us who are in Christ. Now, I want to come back to the centrality of the theme of these final judgments. The one who sits, it refers to he who sat on the throne, from whose face the earth and heaven fled away. So, in addition to the vestiger or the investment, and I use that as a kingly term that is, that is associated with um, the vestments of the king, the way the king appears. Uh, we know, for example, in the recent coronation of uh, King Charles of England, that he wore a stole or a robe um, and he held a symbol, Orbus Mundi, a round ball with a cross on the top of it, round ball suggesting uh, the earth and uh, the cross on top of it suggesting that kings rule by divine right. Um, but the, 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 these are symbols of authority. The one who sits on the throne, however, actually possesses in himself not symbols of authority, but authority himself, itself. So much so that as the throne, in whatever environment the throne is placed, everything of an unworthy nature flees from the presence. This is the distinction. When King Charles of England sat on the throne, he's still a man, though he holds symbols and is robed in the indications of power. But when Jesus, the Lord Christ, sits upon the throne, he is actually the person of authority, so much so that heavens and the earth flee from him. If the heavens and the earth are willing to run away from the appearing of Christ, what do you suppose is the likelihood that any of his decrees uttered from his position on the throne will fail to be the guiding reality of both the realm and all connected to it. That's the point. That's the point of talking to you about the throne. When he decrees that death and hell are to be cast into the lake of fire, when he decrees that Satan, that old serpent, the ancient serpent, the dragon of old, the devil, Satan, when he decrees 
that his punishment is the lake of fire. And we've talked about what that means. Um, when he decrees that, what is the likelihood that that is not the condition that results? In short, it is the concept in eternal things, eternal matters, though these may be part of the invisible realm and the nature of these judgments governing and controlling both spiritual creatures and spiritual circumstances. The finality of the outcomes are just as real, just as real, when the decrees come from the one who sits upon the throne. I want to pick up there next time because there are decrees from the throne that bind the enemies of God in perpetuity and their decrees from the throne that identify the sons of God in perpetuity and all that happens after that is the result of what has been finally decided from the decrees on the throne. So it might be said regarding the decrees of the ones of the one who sits upon the throne, it might be said, res, R-E-S, judicata, J-U-D-I-C-A-T-A, res judicata, Latin phrase that means the thing has been adjudicated, the thing has been settled, there's no appeal, it's finished, it's done. The chapter finally closes on that which has been an offense to God but that He has tolerated until res judicata, until He has finally adjudicated the matter and there is no appeal, it is done, it is done. It is done for both the righteous whose names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life and for the wicked who are judged according to their works. That is why the matter does not end by us going to heaven. Going to heaven is not the final adjudication of anything. The matter has to be adjudicated because the rest of it goes forward, never again to have to look back, never again to be challenged, never again to be in doubt. It is settled. These are unshakable foundations. So we'll talk about foundations when we come back. I'm Sam Solon and I'll see you then.